Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right, well, we're going to go into the message now, and I promise you that the, uh, the camp registration had nothing to do with the topic for the weekend. <laughs> In fact, the topic for the weekend is why does God allow evil? And what's really interesting to me is that I chose this topic when Pastor Chris asked me to preach on this weekend a month and a half ago or more. <clears throat> I already started thinking about this question in my head because I think it's an important one for us to answer as a church. <clears throat> and then, you know, all the incredibly difficult things that have happened in the last few weeks. <clears throat> Pardon me. You know, the question of evil in the world is an incredibly complex question for the Christian to answer. It's very, very complex. It's complicated. Uh, and one of the reasons it's so complicated is that it's expressed in many different ways. <clears throat> so one of the ways that this question is expressed is like this. A lot of people come and they say, why, do why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Lots of people ask that. That's the one that middle school uh, students ask me a lot. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? You know, in the last two months, I've had to say goodbye to two very good friends of mine. They were dear friends of mine. Um, the first was on uh, December, well, December 18th, my friend Marlo went to be with Jesus after battling cancer for quite a while. That's his wife Meg up there too. He left behind a, a wife and a daughter. And uh, then this last week, I had to say goodbye to my good friend, Ron Unger. And Ron and I were very close. We led a cell together for many years uh, with our wives. Uh, they were on my middle school core team right from the beginning. And uh, it was hard. It was a very, very hard week. And you know, by, by almost any standard, Marlo and Ron were good men. If you knew them, you would know they were good men. And Marlo had this crazy sense of humor. He had a weird sense of humor. He did, uh, I'm wearing this shirt in honor of Marlo. He gave me this shirt. There's a, now if you don't understand the joke, it's because you're old. <laughs> there's, a, there's a name brand called Bench. <laughs> and he hated it. He didn't like the name brand. So he made shirts for, for certain people, chair. <laughs> <laughs> And he gave me one on my birthday last March. And, you know, I put it in, my, in one of my, uh, my cabinets at work, and I forgot about it. And then in December, when he passed away, I said, where is that shirt? I have to wear it to his funeral. So I wore it for the first time to his funeral. And this is the second time I'm wearing it in honor of him. These were good people. These were my friends. And you say, God, it makes no sense to us. So the, there's that way of asking the question. And then there's another category of evil. It's these, the faces of evil. It's the face of evil. Why, do, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people at the hands of very bad people? In fact, how do they get so bad in the first place? You know, Stalin, nine, responsible for nine million deaths of his own countrymen. Nine million of his own people. Hitler was responsible outside of the casualties of war for 11 to 12 million deaths. 
11, between 11 and 12 million deaths. Just that alone, the fact that you have a 1 million person difference. People aren't even sure. A million people is a lot of people to not be sure about. That's remarkable. And then there's slavery. Slavery from the year 1525 to 1866 saw 12.5 million Africans stolen from their homes and shipped to the New World. 12.5. And of those 12.5, around 2 million or more died en route and were thrown overboard into the sea. Evil. And you know, as I thought about it this week, it, it started to really bother me. I thought, you know, who... I, I didn't do any research on, you know, Stalin's heritage or Hitler's heritage. I didn't do any of that. But who would think that these wicked, wicked men were one day babies being rocked by their mothers and nursed by their mothers? You know, they, they were cradled by their grandparents. Who, who would ever think that these, that these kids would grow up to be the embodiment of evil? It just boggles the mind that somebody can go so far off. But then there is a third category of evil, and it's the most difficult category of all. It's these things called acts of God, natural evil in the world. Things such as the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. Now, I remember that very distinctly. I was, um, I was a young youth pastor in Winnipeg, and here you wake up on, on the day after Christmas and you've heard about this earthquake and a tsunami. It swept a quarter of a million people to their deaths, indiscriminately, washed up on shore, men, women, and children, gone. And you go, God, how can you allow this to happen? My dad went with, um, I think it was, well, I'm not quite sure who it was with. I think with the MB conference, he went uh, on a missions trip after, uh, about six or seven weeks after, to help do uh, restorative projects, building homes again. But by then, a lot of things had been, you know, the bodies and stuff like that had been cleaned up. My brother, he wasn't there, but he had a missions team. He sent a team into Thailand, and they were on the ground when the tsunami hit. And, you know, here are these young adults who signed up to, to help churches and local churches, and they're now carrying bodies that had been drowned to the makeshift morgues. And you go, God, how? How could this be? And you see, the atheist, he pounces on this. He says, yes. He says, you Christians, you say all these omnis about your God, omniscient, omnipotent, um, omnipresent. You say he's all-powerful, all-loving. If your God is so loving and so powerful, how can he ha have this happen? They say, you only have two options. Either your God is loving but not powerful, so he can't stop the acts of nature, or your God is powerful and willfully does not stop them, and that makes him a monster. That's what I hear. Of course, they kept back you into a corner with only two options, and there's more than two options. But the question is complicated. Now, just because it's complicated doesn't mean that we should avoid the question. And actually, it's a very good time to be talking about this question because Pastor Chris is taking us through a series on Revelation right now. And any person who's alive and feeling and thinking reads the prophecies of Revelation and goes, oh my goodness, there is evil that is going to sweep this globe like never before. And my stomach flips when I read these things, I say, God, well, I have to go through that. And then I pray, God, please let the pre-tribbers be right. <laughs> please. 
I don't think they are, but please, could I be wrong just one time in my life? Just once. And you know, if you, you go, well, maybe I'll be dead by then. Some of you will be. Maybe. But what about your children and grandchildren? And then my stomach really flips. Am I preparing them for that kind of strength that it's going to take to stand in the face of evil? What do we do with the existence of evil and these apparent paradoxes between who God says he is and what we actually experience in the world? It actually leaves many people angry, hurt, and confused. And as a church, we can't back away from these hard things. We need to meet them head on. We really do. But of course, that brings us to another question. Many people don't just ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Eventually, they start asking, why do bad things happen to me? And what I've learned is that there's two different questions being asked there. It's very important to understand that and to get it right. Because the person that's asking, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, is actually often asking an intellectual question. What are the reasons? Help me understand, right? That's often a question or a statement I'll get. Help me understand, Tom, how can this be, right? And so understanding is an intellectual question, right? Uh, maybe it's somebody who's an atheist or an agnostic. They're searching for truth. Maybe it's a Christian who's really questioning their beliefs. I've heard many testimonies of Christians who've left Christianity because of this struggle. But the person who asks, why does God allow bad things to happen to me? Ah, they're asking a different question. They're not asking for intellectual answers. They're asking for a pastoral response. They're looking for somebody to help them when they're in the depths of despair. And what I've learned is that if somebody comes to you with an intellectual question and you give them a pastoral response, you know what they leave with? They leave with the conviction that Christianity is actually just a crutch and there are no good answers. That's what they leave believing. But if somebody comes to you in the pit of despair and you give them an intellectual answer, that's cruel. To say, oh, no, no, God has a good reason for taking your child. That doesn't work. That may come later. But in the moment when you're going through the depths of despair, the last thing you need is to have some cerebral answer to the deepest hurt in your life. So today we need to actually look at both, both questions and answer them both. You know, it's not just the question that's complex, it's the way you answer the question that's complex. This is a big challenge. So what I'm going to start with is I'm going to start by answering the intellectual question. I want to spend a little bit of time here. I, I actually believe that if you're going through something hard, even this can help you a little bit. Um, it, it's, not, it's not the best answer, and I, and I don't give it to somebody across the table from me, but from here I will. And if you're currently facing a dark time, just kind of, if this is too much, just tune out for a little bit. That's totally fine uh, if you do that. But we do need to answer this because I know a lot of people who are asking the question of the mind. So, what do we do about it? The first thing I want to help us understand is this. The skeptic who comes to you and says, how can a loving God allow evil is presupposing God in the first place. Very important to understand. It's actually, an, it, they're actually it's called a self-defeating statement, and if you think about it logically. Now, I'm going to give you lots of examples to help you understand this. But 
Whenever you say something is evil, you must say evil compared to what? If something is good, you must say good compared to what? There has to be a standard that you measure it against in order to be good or evil. And if you say that something is absolutely evil, objectively evil, we say, then there must be something ultimately good or objectively good that is the standard. Okay? Let me give you an example. It's kind of a dumb example, but ice cream. When I first came to Southland here in 2006, Pastor Donovan was the high school pastor at that time. And uh, he thought he was going to pull a little trick on me. So the first youth event uh, that I ever was at, I was in the old auditorium on a Wednesday night. He said, we want to do an upfront game, okay? And we're going to get Tom to come up on stage, and he's going to be part of the eating contest. And we're going to have an ice cream eating contest. And everybody's like, oh, everybody's going to get brain freeze. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm no dummy. Four kids are going to get ice cream, and I'm going to get frozen mayonnaise. I know. I know. I'm a youth pastor, not an idiot. They're not synonymous. And so, and you especially know something is up. If a pastor ever invites you to play a game and then says, go wait backstage while we set up the game, it's ice cream. You don't need me in the backstage. You're telling the kids something without your mic turned on, okay? Like, I know. I've done this, okay? And so... I decided in my heart, I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. I'm going to eat that frozen mayonnaise as if it were frozen ice cream. And it's going to be awesome. So I got there, I looked at it, it's a little yellower than my neighbor's ice cream, that's okay. I know what's going on. I kneeled down at the table, and I started powering through that stuff. Kids are like, <laughs> like this is not fun at all. And, you know, I wasn't even chewing or tasting. I was just swallowing big chunks of frozen mayonnaise. And I almost made, I made it about 75% of the way through. And then it started to melt in my stomach. It was just like a bleh. And I, and I just, I just, eventually, I, just, I actually just couldn't do it. I didn't, I didn't have it in me. So I said, ha, 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 guys, joke's on you. I knew what was going on. They're like, oh, you know. Now, the second you put frozen mayonnaise in your mouth, you know what is going on. There's a standard by which you measure it. You can tell the fake immediately, immediately. Just like if you try to trick me into getting, eating frozen yogurt, it doesn't work. The standard is ice cream. And don't even put gelati on my plate. Like, that's just ice with flavor. Doesn't taste the same, and it's not as good. So, the, when the standard is ice cream, good ice cream, probably vanilla, nut-free, <laughs> just for my son, and Smucker's chocolate sauce, that is the best way to eat ice cream. When it's that, that is the standard. Anything else that deviates from that is disgusting, okay? <laughs> that is the standard. It's very important to understand that everything needs a standard. But, you know, when we're talking about flavors, it's at least conceivable that somebody would like flavored or... Uh, like mayonnaise, potential, I guess. But when we're talking about absolutes, absolutely good or absolutely bad, we need a standard that is not just a preference in the person. It's a standard outside of all of people. All of people. Let me give you another example. Um, oh, let me give you... First of all, let me, let me explain to you what it means to be objectively bad. You see... Hitler was objectively bad. What that means is, 
If you went back 75 years ago when he was alive, he would have been bad. If you go back 750 years ago and tell people back then what Hitler was going to do, they would say, that's evil. And if you were to go 750 years into the future and tell our future descendants of what Hitler did, they would still say it's bad because it's bad for all time. It's objectively wrong what he did, okay? But compared to who? Here's another way to explain it. When I was in Austria, now this isn't a picture from Austria. This is a picture I took from Google, okay? And uh, uh, there's a sheepdog there, Benji. But there were meadows like this when I was mountain climbing in uh, Austria. And what was really fun is that the, the farmers, you know, you'd all of a sudden kind of come across a herd of uh, cows up in, you know, 1,000 meters above the, above the town or whatever, or, or sheep or, uh, or horses just wandered loose up there. But anyways, sheep, you know, when sheep would walk onto a green pasture, they look white. There are my sheep. I was tired when I made this slide, so I just cut their feet off so it looked like they were walking in grass. <laughs> the sheep look white when you put them against the green. So the green is not the standard of whiteness, though. When they would wander onto a snowfield, you'd realize those sheep are yellow and dirty. In fact, sheep are disgusting, especially up close and dumb, really dumb. Side, side story here. One time I was mountain climbing. And when I say mountain climbing, I meant hiking, okay? When I was hiking, one time with my buddies up on the mountain, we, we, we came around, we, we heard in the distance this, meh, meh, like that, meh, meh, like that. It was like pulsing. <laughs> and we walked around the corner, and a sheep was stuck in an electric fence. <laughs> it was getting the pulses, meh, meh. Meh, meh. It was so funny. It's very low voltage. Like I promise you, nobody died. And it got free. It got scared enough when we came to free it that it pulled itself out. It was terribly funny. But sheep are dumb and dirty. Very dirty. And they look dirty when they're on white snow. So what is the standard of whiteness? It's snow. I want you to see it again. Here's my sheep. But there's the snow. White is the, the snow gives us the standard by which we measure white, okay? So what is the standard by which we measure good and evil? It's God. And the more our actions align to God's holiness and his goodness, the better those actions are. The more they deviate from God's goodness and his character, the more evil they are. And that's how it works, okay? You see, if Hitler was the standard... You know what happens? Me compared to Hitler, I'm a saint. I'm an absolute saint compared to him because I'm not nearly as bad as him. I'm just not. But Mother Teresa, compared to Mother Teresa, I'm a selfish whelp. <laughs> because she only owned three habits. That's what she, the, the clothing that, that she wore in her order. Three pairs of clothing. You know, she, she put simplicity, uh, her simplicity and devotion to God was above all material possessions. That puts me to shame. If the standard is a person, we're in trouble. But the standard is not a person, it is God. 
God is the standard by which we know what is good and what is evil. And if you take God out of the equation, you no longer have that standard. So the skeptic who says, how can a loving God allow evil? You say, we'll deal with the loving part in a second. But as soon as you talk about evil, you better explain what you mean, because God is the standard by which we know what is evil. Now, somebody came to me yesterday and they said, you know, I've used that argument against my, my relatives who don't believe in God and they don't accept it. And you know what? You're right. Could be a very sound argument and they might not accept it because really to accept this needs a revelation of truth. So this is really for us as Christians to understand, okay? But the skeptic who's at least thinking should move towards that truth if they're being honest if they're being honest. Okay, so what do we do then with the accusation that if God can do something about evil and doesn't, then God is evil as well? That God is evil as well. And you know what? There's a true argument here. There really is a true argument. I have an uncle who's a pastor in Winnipeg. Before that, he was a lawyer. Lawyers and pastors make dangerous combinations together. And uh, one time I was preaching on Job in my previous church, and uh, I called him because I was troubled by something that it says in Job. It wasn't actually the devil who saw Job and wanted to, to, trouble, to go down and afflict him. It was God who suggested to the accuser, what about my servant Job? And you go, God, what are you doing? And I was very troubled by that. So I called my uncle up and I said, look, Marv, Uncle Marv, I said, if God, or it, let's say a person, let's say I, I, I hired a hitman, to go and kill someone. What would be my responsibility in the eyes of the law? You know what he said? You would be tried as a murderer, even though you're not the one who pulled the trigger. If you were the one who ordered it, who was the mastermind, you are as responsible as the person who carried it out. I said, well, what does that make God? It says it makes him responsible. Oh my goodness. Now what do we do? I had one person, one of my friends, get angry at me for even suggesting that. I say, well, it's in the Bible, so either we close our eyes to it and not acknowledge it, or we deal with the hard question. So what do we do <clears throat> about the fact that God allows evil and doesn't stop it? The first thing that you need to understand is this. There's a very big difference between God allowing evil and being evil. There's a big difference there, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean. <clears throat> Suppose you are a Christian parent who loves Jesus and you've tried to raise your children as best you can, all right? And it's genuine. You have done your best job and the Lord will look at you one day and he'll say, I'm pleased with your effort, okay? If one of your sons decides to leave the home, do drugs, sell drugs, shack up with prostitutes, join a cult, thumb his nose at every good and noble thing that you've taught him, does that mean that you are your rebellious son? No, it doesn't mean that at all. The son's choosing of an immoral lifestyle <clears throat> might be a reflection on his parents. It is a reflection on them, but it's not necessarily a reflection on the goodness of them. There's lots of good, godly people who have raised children who have rebelled against God. Lots and lots and lots. So in the same way, just because God's children choose evil does not make God evil. It's not the same. 
It's very important. But the skeptic will say there's a difference between human parents and God because God could and can snap his fingers and make all the evil go away. And to that I ask, what evil are you talking about? The evil that we do? Because God won't snap his fingers and make that evil go away. For two reasons he won't. First reason is, if God snaps his finger and removes our ability to choose evil or to disobey, he has just forced us to obey, right? And anybody who is forced to obey does not have a, and doesn't have a choice in the matter is not in a love relationship. That's not what it is. And God is not interested in our behavior. He wants our hearts. And as a parent, you should want that too. You know, I can make my kids behave a certain way. Outwardly, we can threaten them. We can scare them. We can get them to behave in public. Not necessarily at home. But just because you can get outward appearances doesn't mean that you have their heart. And you watch what happens to kids like that. The second they become adults on their own, they're gone. And what would you do with a rebellious son? Would you go to him and force him to come back home? How well do you think that would work? It wouldn't work. You love him back home. You woo him. You pursue him. And God does the same. He never forces himself. So he can't, he won't take away our decisions for evil. The second reason is this. I think I gave it already. You can't force your kid to come back. Oh, I hate it. They always, I screw up at the 11 o'clock, and this is the one they put online. It makes me look so human. It drives me crazy. First one is that he won't take away our ability to choose, and number two is he won't force us into submission. Granted, the skeptic will say, but that's only one kind of evil. That's the kind of evil that people choose. What about evil that is natural, that is done to people? First thing is this. Even natural disasters are actually attached to human sinfulness. Did you know that? Romans 8 tells us that. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is longing for the day when God will bring ultimate restoration to the earth. Why would creation be longing for restoration if it hadn't become corrupt? It has become corrupt. Well, God didn't create it corrupt, so when did it become corrupt? Through the rebellion of man. Can you imagine how powerful your sin is that you are affecting the the environment? That's remarkable. That's how powerful um, our sin is. But that being said, there is some evil that God allows to happen. He allows it to happen, natural evil. So how, how do we figure this out? What do we do with this? All right, I'm going to take you through a series of thoughts here. The first thing is we have to start with who is God? Who is God in the first place? What is the definition of God? The definition of God is the greatest conceivable being. Now, what does that mean? God is, when you say conceivable, that means the, 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 the one that you can imagine. If you can imagine the best possible, most powerful being, that is God. And St. Anselm, who was a, a church father who um, penned this as a philosopher, that God is the greatest conceivable being. He said this afterwards. He said, if, and if you can think of anything greater than that, then that is God. So what does this mean? We know from science, well, scientists tell us, that in the first fraction of a fraction of a second after the Big Bang, all of the energy in the entire universe was present. 
in the tiniest split second, the twinkle of an eye, all of the energy in the entire universe was there. Okay? That means that in order for God to have created the universe and all that energy, he must have been more powerful than all of the energy in the entire universe. In fact, probably all of the energy in the entire universe was contained within God. That's scary. I kissed my wife yesterday and I shocked her from static electricity and we both said, ow. That's just static electricity. (laughs) That's how powerful I am. God had all of the energy of the universe contained within him. And not only that, but we know that God is the most loving. If you think you're a loving parent, like Riley said in the video, God's love is greater. God's love is greater. You think you're smart? God is so wise. He contains all of the knowledge of the universe. We're still discovering things. We, we think the things that we're discovering probably aren't even going to be true in 100 years. Because we just don't know. And we're going to live in eternity with God, and we're going to learn something new every single day, and we're never going to exhaust the vast storehouses of God's knowledge and wisdom. All of the knowledge of the entire universe is contained within that being. That's what it means to be the greatest conceivable being. He is the best of the best of the best of all. All right? Now, as the greatest conceivable being... Could God have created a world in any way that he wanted? Of course he could have. He could have created a world in any way that he wanted to. In fact, is it conceivable that God could have created a world in which no evil exists? Yes or no? Yes. You know how? He could have created a world in which there were no people. That would have really helped. No evil right? So God could have created a world with no evil, but he didn't. He created this world where evil is possible. Why would he have done that? Why would he have done that? Because he didn't have to. Well, we have to go to scripture and say, what does scripture say is the reason for God's creating act in the first place? You know what it is? It's for his glory. That's why God created the world. Okay, it says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech, and after night, they communicate knowledge. Psalm 89, which Zach read this morning. Good. <laughs> I heard it yesterday. I was hoping he read it this morning. It says the same thing. God created the world and the world proclaims his glory. Romans 1 verse 20 says that the the fact that God created shows his eternal power and divine nature. And what's really interesting is what comes after this. We know it, right? Therefore, people are without excuse. Think about this for a minute. God created the world in such a way that if you don't have a Bible and you have no idea of who he is, you still arrive at the conclusion that there must be a God. That's how he created the world fascinating. And why did he create it that way? He created it that way so that the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, created for his glory, would come to know him one day. Think about this. Creation was created for his glory. The pinnacle of his creation was humankind. What he wanted for them was to live in a relationship with him. That's what he wanted. 
So when the pinnacle of his creation fell out of a relationship with him, you know what all he had? He had a new way to receive glory by bringing them back into a relationship with himself. He, did, he, he designed a new way to receive glory, which was the very reason that he created the world in the first place. The restoration of the relationship between the creation and the creator is a profound act of glory. It's profound, okay? Now, this is where evil comes into play because God is not interested in your comfort. He's not interested in it. God does not receive glory for your comfort. He receives glory from your salvation. And the greatest conceivable being says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, he says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That means although there is tremendous evil and death and sickness and war and natural disasters in the world, that God is actually saying it's bad. God does not like evil. We know that. Scripture testifies to that. But he says, I'm not going to come back and restore things yet because not the, the maximum number of people haven't been saved yet. And isn't it true that many people come to know Jesus through evil? Isn't that true? So if you think about it, God, is all, God knows evil is going to happen, so he's using it for his purposes. You know, many people were saved with the, by the missionaries who went to Thailand to help the, clean up the bodies and restore homes, but they were restoring homes, not houses, and people. And they were saying, why would you serve us in this way? It's so dirty, it's so dusty. And they'd say, because we love Jesus. And they'd say, tell me about your Jesus that would persuade you to do this for us. And God received glory. And you can understand now why you don't tell that to a, a mourning person, a person who's grieving. You don't say that to them. But there is some truth to it. I'm a firm believer that God allows, and by the way, God does not allow all evil. We know from Scripture that he's holding it back as well. You, do you know what it's called when God stops holding back evil entirely? Hell. Hell will be when God removes his hand and completely allows evil to have its way. That's hell. We're not living in hell yet. We will not live in hell, ever. <laughs> there are certain parts of our existence that are hellish, but it's not hell. It's going to be worse. God allows just enough evil that the maximum number of people will get saved. That's what he's doing. He says, I know evil's going to happen. I'm going to use it. And what's very fascinating to me is you talk to people who are in grief, and you know what you find? That a pain-free life is not actually what they want. Their deepest desire is for meaning in the midst of pain. You know how many people I talk to who go, I'm so sorry that he died. I miss him so desperately. But if God will save one person through his funeral, one person, then it was worth it. That's an amazing testimony. So let me summarize. To say something is good or evil is to presuppose God in the first place. God allowing evil does not make God evil. God is the greatest conceivable being, and that suggests he has a reason for everything he does, including evil. One reason for allowing uh, evil is for, to allow us to choose evil. 
because he has to allow us to choose good or evil. Second, because he knows that evil is a reality, he uses it to his purposes so that the greatest number of souls will be saved. Finally, people long for meaning more than freedom from evil. You know, Rabbi Zacharias talks about that. He says there's this condition where, where people, it's a genetic disorder where they lose the ability to feel. They don't have any feeling in their, and their nerves don't work properly. He says, you know what parents who have children like that pray for? That their children would be able to experience pain. Isn't that interesting? Because they don't know when they've broken a finger. They don't know when they have an infection. They don't know that the stove is hot and so they can burn themselves and they don't feel the burn. Isn't it interesting that pain actually keeps us safe? You know, this week at Ron's funeral, I drew closer to God because of my pain, not farther away. Oh man, if I didn't know Jesus and couldn't draw close to him in the midst of that kind of pain, I don't know what I would have done. So the pain actually drew me nearer not farther away. Well, how do we help the person who is grieving? What do we say to a person to give hope to a hurting heart? What do we do? I thought and thought and thought about that this week. And you know what the answer is? I don't know. I actually don't know. What word brings back a loved one from the grave? What word comforts an Indian child living in the dangerous slums of Calcutta? What could you possibly say to give hope to the wife of a Chinese pastor who's languishing in prison? What could you say? The truth is, there aren't words in the human experience powerful enough to bring ultimate peace to such a troubled heart. There aren't words for that. But fortunately for the Christian, we know someone whose words are powerful enough. They are powerful enough. Did you know do you know who spoke the first words in the Bible? Do you know? You say, God, yes, that's true. What did he say? What were the first words spoken? Let there be light. Do you know who of God spoke that? Which, which one of the Trinity? It was Jesus. Jesus is the one who spoke light into being. That's what First John tells us. Or not First John, John. John 1 tells us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through the Word, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. And later on in John, it tells us that the Word became flesh. Who's the only one who became flesh? That was Jesus. That means that Jesus was the one speaking words. So when we hear those incredible words, let there be light, that's Jesus speaking, let there be light. But what did the light accomplish? What did the light actually accomplish? Well, it brought light to a world that the, the Bible says was formless and dark. And these are the only Hebrew words I remember from Bible school. They're, they're tohu wa bohu. Tohu means uh, empty. Uh, bohu means, uh, no, bohu means void, uh, dark and formless and void. That's how it was, yeah. Formless and void. But do you know to the ancient mind what that actually meant? See, in that same, in that, the next paragraph, in the next sentence, it says, now the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. The surface of the deep to the ancient person was the most terrifying experience you could have. It was absolute pure chaos. It was pure chaos. And so the thought that God was hovering over the surface of this chaos, then when he spoke words, those words didn't just bring light, they brought order. 
And do you know what's fascinating? Most ancient creation stories start with a scary, chaotic sea. Moses, when he wrote Genesis 1, he was just giving the true hero of the story. He said, you guys think it's your God? No, no, no. It was Yahweh. That's who brought the order. Specifically, it was Jesus. Jesus spoke. He brought order. Now in John 1.14, we know that that word became flesh. And when the word became flesh, guess what he started doing? He started speaking order into human bodies, into spirits, into souls, into sickness. He brought order and brought order and brought order. The same God who spoke order into chaos at the beginning was speaking order into the chaos of human hearts. And I wonder if the disciples, when they were asleep, in, uh, when Jesus was asleep in the boat and the storm was raging around them, and he got up and he says, why don't you guys have some faith? How did he calm the sea? With a word. And I wonder, because they were still ancient thinkers, I wonder if they didn't think back, who is this man? Could this be the one who spoke the order into existence in the beginning? He just calmed the sea, the terrifying, chaotic sea. I just wonder. God's words are still speaking order into chaos today. And in the darkest of our darkest nights, he will speak to us. He will speak to us. And you might say, Tom, I'm grieving far too much to hear God's words right now. And I totally get it. There are times when the pain is so acute that to stop and listen is just all you can hear is the grief that's clouding. And you know what? That's okay. It's totally okay. In those moments, don't listen for his words. Go and read them. You think these words are any less powerful? Not a chance. We can cling to his promises. Promises like this. Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping will last for a moment, but his joy comes in the morning. And you can say, but God, it was not joyful this morning. He says, wait for the next one and wait for the next one because it's coming. Your joy will return. It's a promise. Or you can hold on to this promise. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, God will bring with him those who fell asleep through Christ. And I know that I haven't seen the last of, Dar- uh, of Marlow and of Ron. Haven't seen the last of them. I'm going to see them again. Because I know that even those who fall asleep through Christ will be reunited one day. And it's like, I cling to it in my grief. I absolutely cling to it. God is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Maybe you go right to the end. Behold, I'm making all things new, he said. He spoke. And then he said, now write down these words that I've spoke because they are faithful and true, trustworthy. You can trust the words that he's speaking. The the story ends the same way that it began, with God bringing order to chaos. You know, Christ's words have always held power, always these creative powers. But you know why they are particularly effective in speaking into evil and darkness? You know why? Because Jesus is the only one who ever entered into the darkness and faced evil head on and overcame. He's the only one. I defy you to find another God in any myth or any story anywhere in the world that entered and became one of his own that had rebelled against him did not punish them for that, but died on the cross to save them. I defy you to find another God like that. He's the only one who ever did it. Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who can identify with our weakness. 
He experienced that kind of weakness. So when God speaks into a darkness, he's not speaking into it in just just an intellectual way. He's speaking into a way that he says, I have been there before. I know what it's like. And that's why it soothes the soul. It's remarkable. It's incredible. I love, there's a, there's a verse called Jesus of the Scars by Edward Shilito. And I'm going to read it for you. I, lo- I love this. It says, If we have never sought thee, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn bright through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of the thorn marks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. All, in all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we know thy grace. If, when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars, we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. And don't you know that even from the cross, he was still speaking. And the cross marked the turning point in the battle of good and evil for all time. And yes, we live in hellish times at times, but we know that there is a God coming who's going to restore all things. What hope? What incredible hope. I want to give you just one practical piece before we leave. And this is it. If you do not know how to hear God's voice in the light, how will you possibly hear him in the dark? If you are in a time where you can learn and the darkness isn't encroaching upon you, Listen to God's voice. It's like a muscle that you, need to, that you need to work on. Because when it's dark and it's hard, it's going to be difficult to remember those, those, those words and those promises. So make the most of right now to hear from God. Make the most of him right now. Because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And if you don't know how to do that, then for goodness sake, sign up for the Hearing God course. You know, it doesn't, you know, you go from, you know, you know, preaching about the heart to talking about a course. Yes, of course. You think we teach the, a course to give you intellectual knowledge? No, it's to equip your heart for dark times so that you know how to survive them. And if you are in the dark right now, it's okay. You can cling to the words of Scripture. You can cling to the words that he spoke that you recorded in your prayer journals. Or you can come to someone else and have them listen for you. God often uses other people to speak prophetically into our pain, doesn't he? So I want to pray now that that happens for you. And I want to pray for the people who are grieving. And then we're going to sing together this last song. Father... I'm asking that right now for those who are in the time of incredible darkness and pain, that you would meet them in it right in this song of worship and that you would give them hope that joy will come with a morning. Maybe not this morning and maybe not tomorrow's, but there is one coming when the joy shall return 
And we can hold fast to that promise because it's in your scripture. I pray that you would be patient with them and that they would be patient with themselves. I pray, God, also for those who are not grieving, who are struggling with the truth. I pray, God, that they would find the answers to their questioning minds. And I got, God, I pray for all of us that we would begin to hear your voice, our shepherd's voice, more clearly and distinctly in our lives. And God, that it would be light and darkness and that it would guide us through dangerous times. And God, more than anything, that it would draw us into a loving relationship with our creator, the place we were meant to be in the first place. And I pray that you would accomplish these things by your spirit and we worship you and thank you for your death on the cross your victory over death and evil. And we look forward to the day, God, when you make all things new. Amen.